Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. What does Jesus's mission look like here? What's his mission here? What does Jesus's mission look like here? What does Jesus's mission look like here? What is Jesus's mission here? How do I know what Jesus's mission is? Well, again, welcome. Glad you're here. Glad all of you joining us online today. And, you know, if you've been uh, paying attention to the news recently, maybe you saw in the news this week that Liz Truss, the Prime Minister of Great Britain, resigned, I think it was on Thursday, after only 44 days in office. Only 44 days was all the longer she made it, and she resigned a little over a month. And you thought, I remember thinking, man, that's a short time. And then uh, I wonder though, maybe you thought that too, but have you, do you know about the man who was the president of the United States for only one day? Not 44, but one? Well, uh, the year was uh, 1849, and uh, until 1933, the presidential and congressional terms began on March 4th of every year, and then it switched in 1933 to January. But on March 4th is when their term would begin. And so on March 4th, 1849, a transition was set to take place from uh, President James Polk to the newly elected president, president-elect Zachary Taylor. Polk here on the left, Taylor on the right. Uh, these guys, their hair. Like they have, they're the original hipsters, aren't they? That's impressive. The early, early guys in uh, presidency. Well, March 4th, 1849 was a Sunday. And on that morning, uh, James Polk finished up his duties early that morning. The Senate had been in session all night, finishing up their legislative things. And he signed his last things uh, into law between 6 and 7 a.m. And then at 7 a.m., he wrote in his diary, he said, thus closed uh, my official term as president. And he was done. And... uh, President-elect Zachary Taylor then was set to take over at noon that day. That's when the transition of power would take place and he'd be sworn in as president. Except for the fact that Taylor uh, was a Christian and he wanted to go to church that day. And he said, sorry, but I'm not gonna be sworn in today. Uh, We're gonna have to wait till Monday. And he wasn't sworn in until Monday, March 5th of 1849. It's pretty incredible. And so in the interim, who was in charge? Well, it was this guy, David Atchison, uh, another good set of hair. Uh, David was the Senate, the Senate president pro tempore. He was next in line in terms of authority. Now the reality is he wasn't ever really president, but he had that authority for 24 hours. And so much so uh, to the fact that on his tombstone, it says, a president of the United States for one day, David Rice Atchison. But you know, uh, do you ever miss church? I mean, like not miss it like you wish you were there, 
I hope you do if you're not here, but like miss it, like I've got something better to do today. You know, like I was supposed to be sworn in to be president today, so I'm not gonna be at church. Like you'd think that'd be a pretty, you'd forgive that excuse, wouldn't you? Like you're being sworn in as president, but he didn't even let that stand in his way. Yet how often for many of us will we just easily kind of push aside it's sometimes the first thing to go, that gathering together for little things that come up and ah, I'm, I'm not gonna make it today. I've got other things I need to do. I gotta get some work done around the house or we've got a softball game or we've got this going on. It, his example is, uh, and I don't really know much of anything about his spiritual life if, uh, in terms of his maturity spiritually, but the fact that he put such an emphasis on being there on a Sunday morning is pretty profound to me. And you know, that's really what the church is about. It's not just about us being here, it's about, or excuse me, about a place where we come on a certain time, but it's about us gathering and gathering together and, and being together in one another's presence and in God's presence. You know, uh, going to church then is probably a bad way to think about it. I mean, this building if you think about it, this building truly has never really been a church. Some of you are looking at me like, what are you talking about? Well, uh, I mean, it's just a building. In a lot of ways, it's kind of like a big cave in here. I mean, if you, if you killed all the lights, it'd just be like a cave. Echo! 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 Ooh, did you hear that? Uh, cavernous. If you've ever been here at night, it's a bit creepy walking around in this place. The only time it really ever becomes a church is when you're all here. Because it's God's gathered people. And so when we see one another and we're here together, that's when it's a church. It's a nice building, building, a nice facility for sure, but it's only really ever a church in a biblical sense when we're all here together. And uh, you know, so I think it's helpful for us when we think of Taylor's example and think of what is the church then? Because what we're gonna see today in Acts chapter two is Luke is gonna give us a description of the church in its earliest days. He's gonna give us a short summary of what were those very early days like for the church. And uh, when he talks about the church, it's really a lot of times not some of the things we think of when we think of church in our culture. So I've shared uh, much of this list with you before, but I think it's helpful to look at again. Just a few things as we get started here, before we read that description, a few things the church is not. First off, the church is not a building. Did you ever do this when you were a kid? Here's the church, here's the steeple, open the doors, see all the people, right? But that's totally backwards. Should be, here's a building, it's got a steeple, Open the doors, there's the church. Because the church isn't a building, it's, it's God's people gathered. The church also is not a single denomination. It's not just one denomination. You know, sometimes we can get into that thinking like, oh, we got it right, you know, it's kind of us four and, and no more. But it's really not, not true. Really, all the different denominations, we maybe have different opinions on certain things, nuances of what scripture teaches, but on the core things, we all believe, uh, faithful Christians, that, that Jesus is God, that he died on the cross for our sin, that he's the only way to be saved, and his work on the cross, his resurrection are our only means of salvation. It's in faith alone through 
Christ alone, all by God's grace alone. But there's other issues that we might disagree on that are a little more on the periphery that we might be right about, we might be wrong about. But the church is not a single denomination. You might think of it then like a family. You know, that's one of the metaphors that's used in the Bible uh, most often about the church is the idea of the church being God's family, his people, his household of faith. And so in a family, in a Wawasee Bible, this is our immediate family, brothers and sisters in the Lord. And then we're part of a denomination called the Evangelical Free Church. And so we have uh, an extended family, other other churches that have the same statement of faith that are similar to us, a Crossroads in Plymouth, a Community Gospel in Bremen, a River Oaks in Goshen, other churches like this. And uh, that's our extended family. But then there's the entire family, the whole family tree, which encompasses all faithful churches. And the reality is, you know, I mean, some of them we would look at and think, that's kind of strange. They're kind of weird. They might look at us and think, they're kind of weird. Do you have people like that in your own family? You know, your extended family, "Eh, they're kind of strange, they're weird. If you don't have anybody like that in your family, do you know who the weird one is? (laughs) It's you, right? You're the one, it's you. Well, church is a family, and so the church is not a single denomination. Another thing the church is not, the church is not a business. You know, some tend to view the church maybe as a business, but it's, it's not a business, it's a family. That being said, there's certainly some principles of business that apply to an organized local church. I mean, especially as it grows, like there's financial management. We've, we've got to pay the bills so the lights come on. We've got to make sure the facility's cared for and the grounds are kept up and there's civic responsibilities of certain government filings we have to do as an organization and all those sorts of things. So there's business principles, but at its core, we're not a business, we're a family. Just like in your family, there's certain business principles that you have to care for, right? You gotta pay your taxes. You gotta file certain things. I mean, you have to manage your household in that way. But you're not a business, you're a family. Same with the church. Another thing the church is not is it's not a country club. It's not a social club. Some people uh, maybe uh, will treat the church like a social club and but it's really not. And, and let me say, you know, there are social aspects absolutely about the church. And I hope you have a ton of friends and or make a ton of friends in the church. But at its core, the church is not a social club or a country club. Because I mean, clubs like that, they're exclusive. You know, they've got uh, presidents and agendas and you gotta pay your dues. And then if you pay your dues, then you get certain rewards back, you know, certain benefits. But the church doesn't work like that. It's, it's for all people. All people matter, no matter their social class or income or intellect or what they've done or what's been done to them. Because you bear God's image, you matter to God. And so you matter to us, and so it's family. Uh, Another thing the church is not, it's not, and this is good to keep in mind in the weeks ahead, it's not from a single political party. The church is not. You know, uh, Every political party, I've said this before, but they all want to claim Jesus. Have you noticed that? But none of them seem to really want to follow him. And you know, uh, you might have convictions about certain issues that identify with one party or the other, and that's great, and be involved and go after those things, but the church is not tied to a single political party or from one. 
let alone a single nation, you know? Uh, it's all ethnicities, all people matter to God. And the good news is, uh, however the election goes, if it goes the way you're hoping or the way you're not, uh, the good news is when Jesus returns, there's no election. He's not on the ballot. He just comes and God's plan is to set up uh, a, a, a kingdom with a benevolent king, a perfectly benevolent king. And it's gonna be awesome. In the meantime, care for what's going on in the world. Do what God gives you to do. But the church isn't from a single political party. So don't, don't buy into that lie. Our culture has made politics its de facto religion. The also, uh, also, the church is not here for your agenda. While I'm stepping on toes, let's just keep going, okay? It's not here for your agenda. We're here for Jesus' agenda, not our own. Um, you might hear this as well, the, the church is, is not here to meet your needs. Now listen, we wanna meet a lot of needs. The early church we're gonna see when we get to this description, they meet a lot of needs of people and we wanna do that, but it's not our primary responsibility. Our, our primary agenda is to glorify Jesus and to become more and more like him and to love one another in the process. Uh, a helpful little uh, thing on this, uh, share occasionally just to remind us is, is knowing the difference between your thing, my thing, and our thing. And this is true for any church, for any organization. You've got to know the difference because if you can't distinguish between your thing and my thing and our thing, uh, we end up doing everything and burning out. Here's what I mean by that. Everyone in this room, you've got your thing, like that you enjoy, that you're passionate about. I'm curious for you, what is your thing? You know, what turns your crank? Might be fishing, might be camping, uh, might be baseball, might be college football, might be the Bengals. What's your thing? It might be a certain team or a, a gardening. What's your thing? It might be a cause you're passionate about. You know, my thing is helping these types of people. My thing is serving in this ministry to the poor. My thing is, what's your thing? That's great. God says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might as unto the Lord. Do your thing and do it to the glory of God. Be passionate about it, that's awesome. Here's where the problem comes in, is when you take your thing, or I take my thing, which might be really good things, and say, this needs to be our thing. Do you see? And so I come with my agenda or uh, my, uh, my pet project or issue or whatever, and I say, this is what needs to be announced on the platform. This is what everybody needs to do. This is what every life group needs to study. This is what everybody, do you see? And then we start doing everything and we get burned out. But we need to be focused. Go do your thing to the glory of God, but we need to focus on our thing, which is honoring Jesus and growing his church and growing in his word. So the church is not here for your or my agenda. It's for Jesus' agenda. Last but not least, before we get into the text, the church is not your ticket to heaven. It's not your ticket to heaven. You know, I like to joke with that illustration that going to church, sitting in the pew, no more makes you a Christian than going to Taco Bell makes you a chalupa. I had a kid come up to me after the service, first service, by the way. He said, me and my dad, we have a we have an agreement. Every time you tell the Chalupa illustration, we get to go to Taco Bell for lunch. I said, you're welcome. But, but going to church no more makes you a Christian than going to Taco Bell makes you a Chalupa. You know, you, if you go to Taco Bell and you eat enough Chalupas, you'll start to look like one. You might smell like one. 
same thing with church. You go to church enough, you hang out enough, you get involved enough, you might start to look like a Christian, talk like a Christian, act like a Christian, but just coming doesn't make you a Christian. Repenting of your sin and, and putting your full faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that's what saves you. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The church is just a benefit you get with that, a new family. So uh, why am I talking about all this this morning? Well, again, we're gonna see a description of the earliest days of the church in Acts 2 today. And so I wanna make sure we know what we're not looking at so that when we see it, we know what we are looking at. So with that, let me pray. We're gonna see a description of the church and we're gonna unpack what it means for us. Father, thanks for Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that uh, you give us uh, a family. Jesus, you're a big brother and uh, you, ad- you adopt us in to be a part of your household. Uh, Thank you, uh, Lord, that we don't have to do life alone, but that we can do it with friends, that we can do it with uh, with help, uh, not only from you, but from one another. So would you show us that this morning? Show us uh, a devotion to your word and learning from your word and a devotion to one another. And uh, might you be honored today. Uh, Teach me even as I teach your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, the first thing to see this morning in Acts chapter two is that Acts chapter two, verses 42 through 47 describes the early church. If you got your Bible, you can turn there to the end of chapter two in the book of Acts. Um, But it's important just to note this before we even read it, that it's a description of the church because when you read the Bible, parts of the Bible are narrative, they're histories, they're telling us what happened. And when we read those sections of scripture, it's a good portion of it, uh, we need to decide, is this portion of scripture, is this describing what happened or is it prescribing what we should do? And there's a difference between the two. A description just simply describes what happened and then I look at what happened and I go, okay, there's some principles we pull out and apply to my life, right? Prescription, on the other hand, tells us exactly what to do. That we're to mimic and do exactly what we see being done in scripture. So for example, uh, some of the 10 commandments, right? Like you shall not steal or you shall not kill. Are those descriptive or prescriptive? No, they're, they're prescriptive. Don't, don't do that. Don't do it because if you do that, you're gonna hurt yourself and God wants you to have a fruitful and abundant life. So some things are prescriptive, other things though, and I would commend to you that the text this morning is descriptive. But uh, the problem is sometimes this passage in particular has been taken to be prescriptive, that we should imitate and mimic everything we see here in the exact same way. And I think when we do that, or if we try to do that, we're gonna be disappointed and the gospel's not going to advance the way God designed because Luke is simply describing specifically for that guy named Theophilus. Do you remember him at the beginning of the book? He said, oh, excellent Theophilus, he writes to him. And he's describing to him and then ultimately to us what happened in those early days. So Acts 2, verses 42 through 47, much of the book of Acts, in fact, is descriptive. And so we're pulling principles out of how we ought to live, how it affects us. So with that in mind, let's read the text. And I'm actually gonna back up to verse 37 because uh, let me just uh, give you a brief overview in case you haven't been with us or just don't know much about God's word. I'm glad you're here, that's fine. 
But this is the beginning of the church. See, Jesus ascended, he went to heaven, and he told the disciples to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit came upon them and gave them power, and that they would then witness for him and his church would grow. And so early in chapter two, the Holy Spirit comes and they begin witnessing and speaking of the mighty works of God in all these different languages so that people understood because tons of people were gathered at this time in Jerusalem for a feast called Pentecost. And then in, uh, after this happens, people are watching this and like, what's going on? What is this? And Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, pops up and he's like, hey, let me tell you what's going on. This was all prophesied long ago and God is at work. And it's pointing to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. See, many of you, uh, you, you thought he wasn't the Messiah. You actually are responsible for him being crucified. But he didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave, proving he really is the Messiah, and he's ascended. And this is what's happening. This was all promised. And so then here's what we read in verse 37. When they heard this, that Jesus uh, was actually the Messiah, is actually the Messiah, they were cut to the heart. And so they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? I mean, uh, you're right. We killed him. Uh, surely in that crowd, there were some who had been yelling in front of Pontius Pilate, crucify him, crucify him. And now they hear Peter preach and they're like, what do we do? Well, Peter said, well, repent. Repent. That, that word literally means a change of mind. Changing my mind. Thinking about it differently. Turning around. So, so, so change your mind. Repent. Turn to Jesus. Turn from your sin. And, and be baptized. Identify yourself with him. That's what baptism is. Every one of you. Do it in the name of Jesus Christ so, so that your sins would be forgiven for the forgiveness of your sins, he says. If you do this, you'll receive the Holy Spirit if you turn to him. The same Holy Spirit that was speaking, you heard speaking through everyone. Repent and turn to him. And, and Peter goes on, he says, for the, the, the promise, this promise of the Holy Spirit, this promise of salvation and forgiveness, it's for you. <laughs> and it's not only for you, it's for your children. It's, it's for all who are far off, who are, who are far away from God. Everyone whom the Lord, our God, calls to himself. This wasn't the only thing Peter and the apostle said. Peter, uh, we read, Luke says, with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Well, how would they do that? Turning to Jesus, repenting. And look what happened. So those who received his word were baptized, they identified, they believed, they were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. That early church went in a day from about 120, we read in chapter one, to about 3,000. That's, that's pretty good growth, isn't it? Can you imagine? Where would we put all those people if that would happen here? Well, then Luke describes some of these earliest days. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers and awe came upon every soul 
and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together. They had, they had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. Luke is describing for us what the church was like there in its earliest days. He gives us just that brief summary. And uh, they were all gathered together there in that moment. They spent time together. And you know, that's really actually what the, church, the word church means. Uh, in scripture, the word ecclesia is the word there. Uh, and I only share this with you, not to look smart in any way, because I'm not. But just to point out that this word actually means not like a building or a place or a event, but it means a gathering of people, people gathered for a specific purpose. And an assembly, they assembled, they gathered, a gathering. And this word was used all over in culture in that day. It wasn't just for God's people, it was used for other events, an ecclesia, a gathering. And we get the word church because over the next several centuries, there was this German word, Kirsche, uh, which meant house of the Lord. And it began to be substituted for ecclesia, for assembly or for gathering. Only that house of the Lord, it, it had tied to it this idea of a place or a building. And so we started to refer to the gathering as the church. And we, in some ways, kind of took away the power of God's assembled people and replaced it with just a place. But when Luke is talking about the church as he writes Acts, and when we read about it in the New Testament, we're talking about God's people assembled together. Those who received his word that day, they were baptized and they were added about 3,000 souls. That's where we ended last Sunday. And, um, you know, uh, we didn't talk about this verse too much, but I do want to start here just briefly that there were 3,000, you know? And we don't think about... Um, the fact that most of those then who were baptized, those were Jewish people who were in town for Pentecost or who lived in Jerusalem and how big of a deal it would have been for them to now believe in Jesus and not only believe in Jesus, but to get baptized and publicly identify themselves with following him. You know, uh, there's one commentator says there were numerous pools in Jerusalem, so there's plenty of opportunity for these baptisms that take place. But, uh, Baptism was, in Jewish culture, it was a right for the Gentiles to convert to Judaism, to, to wash themselves of their sin and cleanse themselves and purify themselves and become Jewish. And now these guys are getting baptized. What's that about? Well, they're becoming followers of Jesus and they're identifying with him, which is what John's baptism pointed to. And after this, then, uh, we see two things happen that I want to draw your attention to this morning. Two things that Luke notes for us that happened in the early church that we can pull out and that apply then for us. And they're, they're right here in this verse and then they're unpacked in the verses that follow. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. And I think everything after this describes fellowship and their devotion. So these two things are, first off, they were devoted uh, to God's word. 
See, Acts describes the early church and their devotion to God's word. Well, what did the apostles teach when they taught him? They, they taught him often, and we saw it in Peter's sermon last week. We'll see it in another sermon from Peter in a couple weeks where he unpacks part of the Old Testament and says, this is about Jesus. And then they, they unpacked more and more. People were wondering for the first time, what does it mean to be a Christian? Nobody had been one yet. They're trying to figure it out. And so they, they un, unpack that for him. And, and today we have the apostles' teaching and we have what they taught in the Old Testament and we have their teaching in the New Testament recorded for us. They were devoted to God's word. They, they gathered regularly to hear it taught. You know, um, these early converts, these early Christians, they had been Jewish people who grew up learning God's word. They, they knew their Old Testaments well. I mean, they were there to worship. That's why they were in Jerusalem. They packed up everything to come to Jerusalem for a while to worship. They were devoted to God's word. They knew it. They knew the stories. They knew the principles of God's word. And yet they sought and sat to be taught. I think in our culture, we need this even more probably than them because many who come to the church today don't have much of a background in being taught God's word. Or if they do, maybe they have misconceptions about what it is and we need to be taught God's word. It's at the center of what they did as his gathered people. And so the teaching and preaching of God's word, we talked about it last Sunday too, but it has to be at the center. I mean, it's, it's the biggest part of our worship service each week, isn't it? Because we need to hear from God. It's his words. God wrote it all down. And if we wanna hear from him and honor him and be blessed by him, we need his word faithfully and regularly taught, don't we? And so if, if I quit teaching his word, if Pastor Dave quits teaching his word, if whoever is up here is not teaching his word, it's time for a new pastor. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I just always kind of chuckle when sometimes I think, you know, I can't imagine being up here and not teaching God's word. That would be so much work to try to come up with something every week to teach you. It's hard enough to unpack God's word, let alone being responsible for whatever I want to tell you that day. Let's just see what God says. And so that's what we're about. Um, and, and by the way, you know, Jesus said in Matthew 16, verse 18, that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it, right? He would build it. He would grow it. Well, if we're gonna be his church, we need to hear from him. And one of the primary ways he does that over and over in Acts is the preaching and teaching of his word. And it's at the center, friends, of who we are. We're a people of the book, a people of the word. When Paul writes to young pastors, Timothy and Titus, do you know what he tells them over and over and over? He says things like this, teach sound doctrine, teach the word, preach the word. Uh, don't get into vain genealogies and other arguments, just teach and preach God's word. Do it in season, do it out of season, do it with grace, but speak the truth. It's God's design for us. And you know, there's an art not only to preaching God's word, but to hearing God's word, to hearing a sermon. Do you ever think about that? Like, I know I got a big responsibility, you know, coming up and teaching God's word, but you know, all of us have a big responsibility of hearing from God's word, of, of sitting and, and hearing it, whether it's me speaking or whoever. 
doesn't really matter. And there's an art to listening and to learning. And so we try to help you with that by giving you notes when you come in that you can take notes on with fill in the blanks and keep them on a screen right here that I can point to so that if you're like me and your mind kind of wanders, I do the same thing. You can look up on the screen or see where we're at. Oh, there we are. All right, I'm, I'm back in. I'm back. And keep taking notes and engage and, and be part of that process, actively learning and hearing God's word taught. Because here's the deal. All of scripture is breathed out by God. It's his word. It's profitable for us, friends, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God, the woman of God, everyone could be complete and equipped for every good work. We wanna hear God's word taught, but not just hear it. We wanna be doers of the word, right? James said, if you just hear it and don't do it, you're like the guy who looks in the mirror and never combs his hair. We wanna do his word. Jesus said, you're my friends if you do what I command you. And the early church, not only were they devoted to hearing God's word taught, they were devoted to living it out. Uh, See, look, they've devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. That fellowship is their devotion, not only to God's word, but to one another. And it's a way that they obeyed God's word. It was done in community. they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to one another, to the fellowship. And then everything after this describes that. So to breaking of bread. Now that might mean communion. You know, we tend to celebrate communion usually on the first Sunday of each month and remember Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and the Lord's Supper together. But breaking bread can also mean just simply having a meal. When Jesus fed the 5,000, what was the first thing he did before he fed them? He took a loaf of bread He broke it and he prayed. That was just common in their culture. You'd break a loaf of bread and then you'd pray and you'd have a meal together. So this is probably referring to both, both sharing communion, the Lord's Supper, and just having meals together. And then to prayer. They were devoted to praying together. That was part of their devotion to one another and to obeying God's word. You know, uh, my life group meets this evening and uh, right now uh, there's some meat on the smoker So if you beat me home, you could steal it if you want to. But um, we're gonna eat together. We're gonna break bread together. And we're gonna study together and hang out and enjoy our time. And then at the end of our time together, we're gonna divide up into a couple groups and the women will sit in the living room and the guys will go hang out in the garage and pray together for one another. That's what we'll do. That's what they were doing in the early church. And when they did this, check it out, awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Uh, Their devotion to one another, that word fellowship is is really the word uh, koinonia. Have you ever heard that word? If you've been part of the church, maybe you've heard that different places. Kind of a, it's, it's not like something on the potluck line. It sounds like something you'd eat, you know, like some, I'll take some koinonia. It means commonality, that we have commonality together. So fellowship, koinonia, is our commonality in Christ in uh, breaking bread together and praying together and studying and hearing from God's word together. And it's what we have in common. It can also mean uh, our serving together, being a family together. 
You know, uh, fellowship is kind of a strange word too. You don't really hear that other places than mostly in the church. But a good way, I think, to think of it uh, is true fellowship is when you've got at least two fellows in the same ship. You're going the same direction, but it's not just that. It's not just being in the same ship going the same direction. It's grabbing an oar and helping row the boat. (laughs) That's when you really have true fellowship, when you're doing those common things together and you're invested together. And when this happened, awe came upon every soul, not just in the church, but outside the church. They, they saw their love for one another. Jesus said, that's how people will know you're my followers. They're gonna see your love for one another and they're gonna be like, I want some of that. They saw it and awe came upon them and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Now back to our description and prescription thing, right? If this is prescriptive, and we're to do exactly what we see here, then um, I should be up here doing some tricks for you, right? Or we should just see signs and wonders and incredible things happening all the time. And listen, I think God still does miracles. He still works in powerful ways and I could tell you stories about it. But what's happening here is these were done through the apostles. See, Jesus had done miracles and signs and wonders, why? to authenticate the fact that he was the Messiah. And now he's left and now the spirit has come to work. And so the spirit, not instead of doing these miracles through Jesus, he does them through the apostles. Why? To validate their message. And to say, hey, this is the same thing. This is the continuation of what Jesus taught and told us to do. It's God working. Well, all who believed then, they were together. And they had all things in common. Here it's instead of koinonia, koine, just common. They had it all together. And look what they were doing. They were selling their possessions and belongings, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need, meaning those within the church. And by the way, this is not communism. Like they had all things in common. And so everybody, nobody had rights. Everybody just gave it all up. And it was everybody's. No. They, this was a voluntary act of the will. They, they, they sold things to help people who were in need. It was their choice. And they didn't sell everything. Look at the next verse. Because day by day, they attended the temple to worship and they were breaking bread, eating meals together, where? In their homes. So they still maintained a lot of their own possessions. Some of them were really wealthy. Some of them were really poor. But when a need arose, they were generous to meet it for one another because their devotion was not only to God's word but to obeying it and a devotion to one another. See, they received everything they had, their food, they received it with glad, with generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And when they did this, look what God did. He added to their number day by day those who were being saved day by day. See, Acts 2 here, and much of the book of Acts is a description of the early church, its earliest days. And in its earliest days, from the very beginning, they were devoted to the teaching of God's word. And they were devoted to one another. And friends, that's what, that's what we're about. We wanna be devoted to hearing God's word, to hearing it taught, to being in it ourselves and reading it or listening to it on maybe an audio CD or a podcast or whatever else, and then being devoted to one another, 
So what does that look like for us, just here as we wrap up at Wallace C? Well, we talk about it sometimes in this way as your pathway. Just some common language, just to make it, kind of put some handles on it and know, what do I do? You know, maybe you're new or maybe you've been here a while and you're like, okay, well, what do I do? Well, if you call Wawasee home, this is your family, our desire for you is to pursue three things. Three things. First one is to gather, to be here regularly, to, to show up. Why? Because that true koinonia, that true fellowship means I'm rubbing shoulders with you and I, I bump into you in the commons and, oh, I remember that thing I wanted to tell you or I remember that issue you're going through and I ask about it and I pray for you while we're together. And something unique happens when, because that's the definition of the church. God's gathered people, right? Not a building, but a people. And so we want to see you gather. And for those of you joining us online, I'm really glad you can. And I know for some of you, it's, it's the only way you can right now. And we love you. We care deeply about you. But for the others of you who, you know, just for whatever reason, you're not here, we'd love for you to be here and to be here regularly. There's something that happens when God's people are gathered. So be here, gather. The, the second thing is not just show up, but grow up. <laughs> grow spiritually. Get connected to some kind of growth ministry. So not just Sunday morning, but connect into a life group. Come to Forge, guys. Come to Thrive, ladies. Connect in just some kind of uh, maybe small group of two or three people that you just pray with regularly and you're growing in God's word and in your devotion to one another. So gather and grow. And then the third thing we wanna see everybody do is go. Now, we don't wanna see you leave. We wanna see you go serve. Go serve somewhere. Contribute as much or more than you consume. Be a part. Don't just go for a ride on the ship. Grab an oar. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of places you can do that. And uh, one of the bigger needs right now is in, and I've mentioned this before, but in our kids' ministry, um, I'll just share this one. And it's, this one comes to mind a lot because that's happening on a Sunday morning, but there's others. There's others. Come talk to us. We'll, we'll help you plug in somewhere. Um, but I'll give you one example. Uh, I have a friend, and then we're going to pray and call it a morning. I have a friend who's a pastor at a large church in Chicagoland, uh, about three, 4,000 people. And pre-COVID, they had about uh, 400 kids in their kids' ministry across their campuses and um, about, thir or excuse me, about 100 volunteers. It's pretty good. Um, and post-COVID, as of last spring, they were back up to that, over that 400 number, closer to five, I believe, and in their kids' ministry, and they're growing. And, but do you know how many people they had serving? It wasn't 100, and their attendance was back and up. All those people were back, but only about 30 to 40 serving. And so uh, from, I just hear it off and off that the church, everybody's back, but nobody's back. Nobody's grabbing the oars. So let me just encourage you. There's opportunity for you like in our kids' ministry or in praying for people or, or so many things. Grab an oar. Start rowing the boat. It's, it's a lot of fun. Let me pray with you.